I remember back in my time at Uber, I was trying to tell a story to a senior product executive at the company. And I went like to ground, ground zero. I was like, okay, <laughs> no. all the context setting. And like, it took less than two minutes before he stopped me. And he was like, I get it. Like, let's see the outcomes. <laughs> and so that was like a great learning lesson for me of like, okay, yeah, he gets it. I don't need to give the whole background story of how we got to where we are. How can I just jump straight into the things that he cares about? Welcome to Deep Dives. My name is Rid, and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today's guest is Femke, who's a design lead at Gusto, but you probably know her because designers have watched her videos on YouTube over a million times. In this episode, we go deep into how to develop your product thinking as a designer, how to tell better stories, and how to work more effectively with PMs. But first, I wanted to learn more about what it was like making the jump from IC roles at Uber and Wealthsimple to management at Gusto. Yeah, so I was working as an IC for quite some time at Uber and Wealthsimple, and I feel like all ICs eventually get to this fork in the road of like, okay, do I want to go into management or do I want to continue my career as an IC? And I knew sort of early on that management was a path that I was really interested in. I think it comes through in the fact that I teach others as well, like in my own time. I love helping other people grow. I love helping people level up and having those more strategic sort of high level Product conversations are always ones that I've really enjoyed. So I thought, okay, management is something that I at least want to give a good go. And so I made that known to my managers. In fact, like I think even when I was still a couple years into my career and sort of knew that that was where I wanted to go, I told my manager and I said, look, I know this isn't going to happen in the next one, two, maybe even three years, but just so you know, this is the path I'm interested in. And so it's always been a topic of conversation for me and my managers throughout my career. And, you know, once I'd been a senior designer for a couple of years, I sort of thought like, okay, now, now might be time. You know, I feel like I've got the senior designer experience under my belt. I'm kind of ready for that next challenge, ready to level up, ready to sort of help coach and mentor other designers get to this place in their career. And so that was kind of when I started to bring up that conversation topic more regularly, more seriously. And uh, eventually it led to me switching jobs and moving to Gusto as a brand new manager. I had no management experience when I applied for this position, but luckily they they took a took a chance on me and hired me into a design lead role. And I'm very grateful for that. Why do you think they took a chance on you? I mean, how did you convince <laughs> a very, very credible company? I mean, it's not like Gusto has a difficult time sourcing managers. Nah. People want to work at Gusto. You were able to get them to the point where they would take quite a big bet on you as a manager. What was that like? What were those conversations like? Yeah, I worked really hard on making sure my application and my experience came across as one that showed I was ready for management because... Being an IC, applying for manager roles, I was like, I, I'm going to have to work really hard for this. I don't have the management experience. So how am I going to show them that this is something that I'm ready for, that this is something that I'm, I'm really excited about? And so I talked to a lot of other designers who had done the same thing, asked them what had worked well. I tweaked my resume, changing words from worked on this thing to leading this thing, like really showcasing and demonstrating tangible examples where I'd had the opportunity to lead in an IC role. 
And I think that helped me land the initial conversation. And then throughout the interview process, just really reiterating any examples or experiences I'd had that I felt would be relevant to management, that I felt demonstrated some of those expectations or roles and responsibilities. Some of that included, for example, sharing my experience mentoring an intern during their internship and talking about that experience. Other things I talked about were the mentoring, the coaching that I do on the side, helping other designers. So I tried to make up for what I was lacking without having that actual manager experience by bringing in other experiences I did have that I felt were applicable. I love the idea of not waiting until you get the promotion to actually do the role. So even just managing yeah. an intern, that's really, really cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that was like and, and how you even put yourself yeah. in a position to have the opportunity? Yeah. So I think because I had talked to my managers throughout my career about that I was interested in management, when opportunities came up that would allow me to dip my toes in it, they would think of me. So when we hired an intern over the summer, my manager came to me and said, Hey, Femke, like, I know you're interested in management. Do you want to mentor the intern during their internship? And I was like, yeah, of course. So I think it comes back again to just being really clear and communicating where you want to go in your career, what you want your growth to be. And that way people will help look out for opportunities that align with that. I love it. I would imagine still though on, on day one, there were probably some butterflies. You're in this like totally new role. You're stretching yourself in the best way. You're surrounded by new people. Did it, did it spark some imposter syndrome? What was that like the initial first week of kind of settling in? Yeah. When I found out that I got the role to join as a design lead, I definitely felt some imposter syndrome. I was like, okay, can I actually do this? Or have I just been kidding myself sort of thinking that this is something I'm ready for and the next step that makes sense. I knew that when eventually I would make this jump from IC to manager, irregardless, there'd probably be some imposter syndrome. And because I was interviewing for this particular role, one of my criteria when interviewing was that the company would support me in that leadership growth. So Gusto actually provides leadership training. And that was something I asked about when interviewing, because it was really important to me that I come into a company and be supported on that journey towards management. So when I joined, I had a little bit of comfort knowing that, okay, I'm not being completely thrown into the dark. There's going to be some support. There's going to be some management training that I'm going to be able to do. And I did do that in my first three months or so, I think. And so that, while that didn't eliminate imposter syndrome, it definitely helped me to overcome it, knowing that I wasn't completely alone. What are some of the main ways that you've grown as a leader since joining Gusto? Yeah, I think main ways I've grown since becoming a leader is just through those like challenging moments of management that like as much as you try to prepare for, nothing really prepares you for those kinds of moments. And it's really learning through doing and experiencing those challenges. For example, Gusto had a layoff a couple of months ago and I unfortunately lost some team members. That was really hard. I didn't know how to deal with that kind of situation. And so just learning through those experiences, but being comforted in the fact that I have a really supportive team behind me to help me through these moments has been really, really great. I know you're working on the member experience at Gusto. 
Can you give us a little bit of background, maybe even just for people unfamiliar with Gusto, what types of Mm -hmm. things are you working on? And maybe what are some of the design challenges that you face in your day-to-day right now? Yeah. So I work on the members team at Gusto and members is basically any employee, contractor, people that are sort of being paid through Gusto for their work. So Gusto is a sort of HR payroll platform. And what's really unique about the members team actually at Gusto is that we're the only mobile team. The rest of Gusto is all web and desktop based, but on members, we do have a a web experience, but we also have a mobile app called the Gusto Wallet. So I spend quite a lot of my time there working on mobile experiences, which is really great and I really enjoy it. And we have a lot of really interesting challenges and experiences. So there's the sort of obvious experiences for members like, okay, you need to put in your like bank account information. Where do you want to get paid to? Maybe you want to split up your paycheck and get paid into multiple different bank accounts. Maybe you also need to do things like time tracking. We have a lot of hourly workers through Gusto, so they might need to track their time. Or you might need to do some benefit selection through Gusto. So we provide those experiences for our members. And then what's cool about members is that we also have a lot of financial products that we offer to members as well. So you can sign up for the Gusto wallet. You can get a spending account. You can set savings goals. So it's really fun to work on multiple different sort of problem spaces within members. And we have some pretty exciting things coming up this year for our members. And we're trying to make benefits more widely available to members all across Gusto. I think it's pretty awesome that we use each other's yeah, products because you're an instructor on Maven and I'm, I, I'm a member on Gusto because mm-hmm. I actually, whenever I join a new team, I have a little moment of like, yes, it's Gusto and not something else because it's really good software. So I, I appreciate yeah. that part of our friendship. It's cool. Um, you said something interesting that I'd like to go back to, which is you specifically were trying to figure out if there was leadership training as a part of Gusto. And you've obviously been a part of some pretty prolific design cultures. What are some of the other ways that you are evaluating the different teams that you're considering joining? Like what made Gusto stand out and maybe even taking it a little bit higher level for other designers who are maybe on the job market or considering switching roles, what are some of the things that they should be looking for in the teams that they're interviewing with? Yeah. When you're interviewing, it's good to have a list of criteria of things you're looking for from those companies. Maybe it's like a list of particular benefits or a type of culture you're looking for. Could even be things like size of team or scope of problem space. So I definitely wrote that list for myself and thought about, okay, what kind of environment do I want to be in and what kind of environment would support the growth that I want in the next few years of my career? So making sure those two are aligned are really important. For me, one of the big ones was around sort of design team culture. I wanted a place that had a mature design team. That meant a few things. It meant a design team that had all of the functions related to design. So we've got designers, content writers, and researchers. That was important to me. I wanted that kind of trifecta as a baseline sort of expectation. Another thing that was important to me was design's visibility in the company. Does design have a seat at the table? And at Gusto, we actually have a head of design, uh, Amy Thibodeau, and she sits at the C-suite. So like the same level as the other execs, which 
Unfortunately, it's pretty uncommon these days in big tech companies. Design often reports up to a product uh, a product executive. So that was really promising to me to see, okay, design literally has that seat at the table. They're being respected and they have a voice at that level. And then the third thing important to me was the design team's relationship with product. And our design is kind of just seen as pixel pushes, sort of executing on the work, or do designers play a strategic role in the product conversations? And what is their relationship like with product? Is there a strong partnership there? And that can be really hard to gauge when you're interviewing. And so I had a lot of sort of questions that I'd pre-written for myself to, to make sure I asked in the interviews to get a really, really clear sense of if that was happening. I also always made sure that I talked to a PM. Sometimes mm. in the design interview process, you only talk to other designers. And I made sure that I had that conversation with a PM so that I could learn from the PM's point of view what their relationship was like with design and what their ex expectations were from their designers too. You're one of my favorite people to listen, talk about just this relationship between product and design. And one of the things that you talk about is the difference between just being a product designer and a product thinking designer. Can you unpack that one a little bit for us? Yes. In my course, I talk a lot about being a product thinking designer. And, you know, a lot of us, we're hired as product designers. That's our role. It's pretty clear what the expectations and the responsibilities are there. And the reason I've thrown the word thinking in there is because I want to encourage designers to see their role as both design and product. I think we're kind of shoeboxed into the design corner. And I think as product designers, we kind of almost need to reclaim the word product back a little bit. And so when I talk about a product thinking designer, I'm talking about a designer who is not just focused on the second diamond, you know, in the double diamond process. So they're not just executing, they're not just pixel pushing. They're thinking about the product. They're contributing to those early strategic conversations around what is this problem we need to solve? How can we solve it? What are the pain points? What are the goals and the needs of our users? What are the business metrics we need to hit? How can we have impact here? So all of those more product heavy questions that I feel as designers, we aren't as involved in as we could or should be. And so that's what I'm really trying to encourage with the term product thinking designer is to get those designers earlier in the conversation with their product teams. What advice do you have for someone that feels a little bit trapped later downstream? They're mainly just in execution solution space. I've talked to so many designers that get trapped at that solution. It's part of the process and it can be really challenging to break out of that, especially if your product team doesn't see design as a strategic partner. And so my first recommendation is to try to get into those earlier conversations. I'm sure they're happening. You're just not being invited. So instead of waiting around to ask for the invite, invite yourself, right? Get yourself into those conversations as much as you can and let your PM know that you want to be a part of that stage of the process. It could just be that the PM thinks you're too busy or you're not interested, or maybe they don't see where you could have value. And so you need to let them know and tell them, yes, I want to be there. Here's where I think I can have input. Here's the value I think I can bring to these conversations and then get yourself invited. It's come up twice now. I can tell you're someone that's 
really assertive in that if you want to get somewhere, like you tell your report. <laughs> I want to like pause and call that out because it doesn't come naturally. And for some people that actually might be a little bit intimidating, but yes. it's such good advice. It is really hard to tell people what you want <laughs> in, a, in a work environment or in a working relationship. Sometimes that can be really scary or really, really daunting. And I, I get it. I have been there too. And it's taken me years to push down that imposter syndrome or build up that confidence, right? But I've kind of figured out that if I don't say anything, nothing is going to change. And I can't expect people to read my mind or understand or know what I need or what I can bring to the table. And so if you can communicate that, I would encourage you to. Now, if you are someone who maybe struggles communicating and verbalizing that, then instead I would say, show them. Instead of telling them, show them, maybe just do it and then say, look what I've done and actually proving by doing it what you need or, or what the value is, whatever it is that you're trying to get across. I think showing is super, super powerful and could work well for those people who struggle to put it into words. Yeah, I, I love that. Don't, uh, don't ask for permission. Just do it. Yeah, exactly. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about your process. Let's say that you are defining a problem for a new project, max ambiguity. Can you share a little bit more about your discovery process and what those early stages look like? Yeah. So sometimes we do get these problems that are super ambiguous and we're like, okay, how do I unpack this? Where do I start? I kind of have this like trick question in my back pocket that I always bring up when I'm in this situation. And it's honestly such an easy question because it's one word and it's the question, why? Why are we doing this? Why did we make this decision? Why is this important? Asking those kinds of questions can uncover or unpack so much hidden ambigu ambiguity ambiguity can uncover a lot of ambiguity that you might see in those early stages of a project. So asking questions is one thing I would do. Another thing I would do is try to dig deeper. Maybe there's a little bit of surface level data, or maybe there's like a couple of customer quotes. It's often not enough. Can we dig deeper into what is the real user pain point that's happening here? Or what is the true goal that we're trying to achieve? What is happening behind these metrics? Why is that important? Why should we care about that? So trying to really dig deeper into things is another thing I really like to do. And then one reminder I try to remember is that often as designers, we're the voice of the customer in a lot of these team conversations. And there's no one else better positioned in our teams than ourselves to demonstrate empathy for our users. And so putting on that kind of customer hat too and asking questions from a customer perspective or really playing that role or being that voice of the user can also be really beneficial in those early stage conversations to really figure out, is this what they need? Or like, are we focusing on the right thing? Are we prioritizing things in the right order? Think about the customer impact that your decisions are having and that can also help bring some clarity to the table. It's so good. One of the things that I'm personally curious about just as someone who has almost exclusively worked on very small teams and startups uh, mm -hmm. where we haven't had like dedicated researchers. It sounds amazing. Right. I've never actually been a part of it. How does the process change and how does that relationship work in the very early stages where 
maybe it is not exclusively falling on your shoulders to have those conversations and surface some of those insights. I'm curious how you make sure that you're still getting to the point where you can really understand the customer versus yeah. being more reliant on someone else. Yeah, I'm definitely a fan of the sort of domain model of design org structure, where as a designer, you are sort of permanently staffed to a particular team inside the company. So for example, I'm on the members team. And that means I can go really deep into that domain and build a really strong perspective around that problem space versus say a more sort of studio model where designers might hop between different teams depending on the highest priority project. And that way it's kind of harder to build that that domain knowledge. And then, you know, you throw research in the mix there. Sometimes you might have access to a researcher other times you might not. Uh, on the domain sort of setup, more often than not, you're more likely to have access to a researcher. And so they might be the ones doing more of that customer empathy building, providing research reports, talking to customers. And so how do I still stay plugged into that when I'm not quote unquote at the front line of that anymore? The ways I've done that is forming a really strong relationship with my researcher trying to involve myself as much as I can where needed or where there is opportunity to. I think also keeping my eye out myself for research opportunities and bringing those to my researcher. I don't want to just rely on them to always take the initiative on themselves to identify research opportunities. I think that's something we should share together. And then honestly, there's been times in the past where even though we've had a dedicated researcher, they've let me run some research sessions. And so that's also been really fun. And I actually encourage folks to do that. Even if you have a researcher available to you, you should still be talking to customers when you can. And so that as well helps me kind of stay in check, build that empathy with the customer and help deliver those insights back to our product team. Another question I have is, what are some of the ways that designers can increase the amount of influence that they have on product strategy and the overarching company roadmap? Yeah. So I think there is more opportunity than designers realize to increase their influence in things like product strategy and roadmaps. Again, you're kind of the voice of the customer a lot of the time. So what are some things that you can bring to the team that you have heard or seen or observed or noticed from customers? It's not uncommon to get a roadmap from your product team and it's all very business driven or very product or company driven, right? Like, oh, we need to hit these metrics or we need to release these features. I also talk a little bit in my course on the difference between outcomes and outputs. And so what I'm referring to in that example is a lot of outputs. Here's all the things we need to do or the things we need to ship uh, in, our, in our roadmap. And I think as designers, we are pretty uniquely positioned to try to encourage teams to think more about outcomes. What are the things we want to achieve? And by starting with outcomes, those eventually turn into outputs. So uh, thinking about outcomes, it could be specific metrics that we want to hit, or it could be uh, experiences we want to deliver for our customers, or pain points we want to solve, or goals we want to help our customers achieve. And by sort of reframing that conversation around outcomes, the outputs will come, right? And that also helps us 
create more space around what those outputs could be by not over-indexing and focusing too much on solutioning when it comes to roadmaps and those sort of early product conversations. We should be focused more on the outcomes we want and that will drive the solutions. Very well said. Thank you. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. One of the kind of tactics that we have in our arsenal as designers when we are trying to influence the, the roadmap is when we have the opportunity to tell a good story, take advantage of it, right? And you talk about this idea of storytelling, kind of having a hidden agenda of selling at the end of the day, which, which I totally agree mm -hmm. with, right? Like we're trying to make things happen and get people bought in on ideas. So what are some of the tactics that you think more designers can use to effectively sell their ideas to other stakeholders in the company? Storytelling definitely, I believe, has this hidden agenda of selling because we're trying to get people bought into our ideas, right? That's what storytelling is all about. And I think my number one tactic or recommendation for improving your storytelling or trying to get your ideas bought in easier is just knowing your audience. Like, who are you telling your story to? Who's on the other side of the table from you? Because the more you can know your audience, knowing what their goals are, what they really care about, what their level of altitude is in the company. Are they a senior executive? Are they an engineering peer? Knowing what they care about in their role can help you frame your story in a way that makes it important and valuable for them. So, I've told stories to C-suite execs. I've told stories to a design peer and I've told the same stories to those two different people. But the way I deliver that story is very, very different. I remember back in my time at Uber, I was trying to tell a story to a senior product executive at the company. And I went like to ground, ground zero. I was like, okay, <laughs> no. all the context setting. And like, it took less than two minutes before he stopped me. And he was like, I get it. Like, let's see the outcomes. <laughs> and so that was like a great learning lesson for me of like, okay, yeah, he gets it. I don't need to give the whole background story of how we got to where we are. How can I just jump straight into the things that he cares about? So the more you know your audience and what they're motivated by, I think the better you can tell a compelling story. In my role as a designer, I think one of the things I'm most intimidated by is that part of kind of almost facilitating a meeting too, because it's not just storytelling a lot of times. It's like planning out what the right discussions to have and the right checkpoints in the story are yeah. and nailing that amount of context, like making sure that we're being efficient and not getting lost in the details, but also we're not just like zooming in too fast. And striking that balance, I legitimately think it's one of the hardest parts of being a designer, actually. Yeah, facilitation is a whole challenge and it's like a whole skill in itself that, you know, as designers, we do a lot of facilitating. So it's part of our role. And it's something I still am learning myself. I think it's one of those practices where or one of those skills where we really have to practice to improve. And when I started facilitating, I kind of thought my role was to do a lot of talking. Like, okay, I need to talk a lot, get everyone engaged. And then I've kind of come to realize that almost the best meetings I've facilitated is when I've talked the least because I've just clearly set the, the agenda, set the tone, set the whatever it is. And 
then sort of stepped back and then the meeting just happens more organically. And so that was an interesting kind of uh, insight for me to realize that, okay, it's not necessarily about me needing to, to talk all the time. It's more about how can I set this group up for success? How do you figure out what the right visuals to show are when you're facilitating a meeting like that? Because I, I try a bunch of different things. Like sometimes I have a fig jam document open. Sometimes I have just a notion document with like toggles. Yeah. And I feel like I'm still exploring and trying to figure out what works. So I'm curious, like, how do you even decide, all right, I'm running this meeting. What am I making to effectively run this meeting? When running a meeting, it can be challenging to figure out, okay, what are the visuals I use? Like, how do I tell this story in a visual way? And I feel like early in my career, I thought that like, quantity was better than quality. Like I need to show lots of visuals. I'm going to show all the 10 explorations I did to get to this like final thing. And I'm going to show all the details and have everything as like high fidelity as possible to really show that I know what I'm doing. And I've kind of come to realize that it's not necessarily about quantity. It's not necessarily about quality either, but I think what's helped me is really thinking what do I need out of this meeting? Or what is the goal of the conversation we're going to have? And how can I provide supporting visuals to best help us have that conversation? So if we want to have a conversation around flow structure, like when should the sign up page come up? Let's look at it from a really zoomed out perspective. Maybe we can do that with just some gray boxes. We don't need high fidelity full-on designed screens to have that kind of conversation of where something should fit in a flow. So really thinking about what do I need to get out of this and how can I have supporting visuals? Because I find if we show the wrong visuals or the wrong fidelity of visuals, sometimes that can also hinder us because it can be really distracting or people can focus on the wrong thing or get sort of carried away with a detail that, oh no, I don't need feedback on that or that's, that's not what we're here to talk about. And so really thinking about what are we trying to get out of this conversation and how can I show supporting visuals that helps us anchor on that? I've definitely been in those meetings where oh, yeah. within, within like five or six minutes, you know, like, ah, shoot, I went too high fidelity. I went lost. too far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. And you know, very quickly. Uh, the other thing I'd like to talk about is just the different strategies you have for working effectively with PMs. It's such a big part of really being an effective designer and driving impact at a company. And one of the things you talk about is this idea of managing up. Can you share a little bit about what that looks like and, and how designers can do it effectively? Yeah, I think managing up is a skill that we need to learn as designers. And it kind of ties into what we talked about earlier around proactively communicating and like saying what you want or saying what you need. So managing up is all about how can I tell the person who has you know influence here that can help me get what I need? How can I tell them what I need? I think a lot of the time we assume people know what we need and often they don't. And so managing up, it doesn't necessarily mean your direct manager. It could be, okay, how can I get this product executive to help our team out and, and get us what we need? And you probably need to do that in a proactive way by telling them what you need. So identifying the influence that others have around you and where they sit in the company and how they can help you is really helpful and kind of gives you that opportunity to 
better get what you need. And it's also worth thinking about how much support you have already from that person, right? So this might be a person where you don't have much support from. So first you might need to work a little bit on getting more of their buy-in or getting more of their support. I think it's unlikely to expect a product exec to go and get you some more resources for your team if they aren't really bought into what your team is doing or don't really know much about your team. So make sure you focus first on getting the support from that person and then they can go and advocate for you. What are some of the other ways that design can effectively collaborate with PMs? There's so much opportunity for designers to collaborate with their PMs. I think a lot of it is in that early stage sort of product discovery part of the process. But I also love bringing PMs into my design process too. I think too often we as designers go into a cave, do our designs and then come out and show the designs and things like reviews and crits, which are a great moment to show the work. But I think that it's a shame if that's the only time your product partner is seeing the work. So I try to give more regular updates, even if it's just small changes that I've made or sparking a conversation around a decision that I'm trying to make. I think our product partners should be seen as partners, as sort of thought partners. And I even had a conversation today with my PM, just a thought exercise, trying to think through something together because I was struggling to make a design decision. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad reflection that I can't make this decision. It's more like, hey, let's work through this together, right? Like, I've got some ideas from the design side. I'd love your perspective from the product side. So how can we work through this? And sometimes that might be a Slack conversation. Sometimes that might be in Figma together, actually co-designing, which is always a lot of fun. Yeah, really involving them as much as you can in your design process. They probably would love to be more involved in those conversations. I find often PMs get really excited when they get invited to more of those design level conversations. So don't be afraid to bring them into your process more than you are today. I love that you went beyond just sharing more updates and actually like bringing them into the ideation part of it. Yeah. Because that was actually feedback that I got from our head of product at Maven, where sometimes it's just easy to think like, well, they're really busy. And if I just like keep them in the loop and like, mm -hmm. then we'll talk about the hard things at crit. But the fact is like solving problems with design is pretty fun. You know, and yeah. a lot of PMs like genuinely love that. And I think I even just in the last few months underestimated how exciting it was for our head of product or basically who's my PM, like how exciting it is to just be a part of the brainstorming and the figuring yeah, out of like, the meaty, <laughs> the meaty design challenges. Right. And so uh, I think that's really great advice and a great way to just strengthen that relationship too because it is you're having fun together hopefully <laughs> totally yeah and that design product partnership again it should be about collaboration it should be about you co-creating and designing together and you know i don't mean literally pms coming in and designing in figma like i mean sort of having those conversations letting them have some perspective or opinion on the work and figuring out solutions together and so it shouldn't be this like i'm gonna go away and come back to you it's like okay how can we co-create this together how do you handle the situation where that co-creation goes a little bit sour and maybe they're just repeatedly pushing back on your work. It's not uncommon for a PM to push back on work, I think. And in a way, it's their job. So I try not to take it personally. 
I think when this happens, I try to figure out where they're coming from. So why don't you think this is going to work? Or what is it about this that is out of scope? Or why can we not do this? So really understanding the why behind their feedback. Often when someone gives you feedback, there's, there's more behind it. Like there's actually a reason for why they think that thing or why they have that piece of feedback. So trying to pull that out of them is usually the first thing that I try to do. So just trying to understand the rationale behind why they might be pushing back. And sometimes that's enough. Sometimes I'm like, oh, okay, like we literally can't do this from an implementation perspective. Got it. Other times it might be like, oh, well, you know, I just don't like it. Or, oh, I'd prefer to work to, to do this instead. And then again, a bit more probing, like, why is that? Why, why would you prefer this instead of that? And so really trying to understand the motivation behind their feedback. And then I think you can have a constructive conversation. I like that you highlighted that the pushback actually is really helpful a lot of times. Like it is their job. It is what makes an effective manager in many ways. And a lot of times as a designer, I, I don't know, especially working in a startup, like it's easy to get a little bit lazy and be like, you know yeah. what, that is good enough. And I'm on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And having just one instance of someone really pushing on you is enough to kind of take a step back. And, and a lot of times I find a better output there. And not only that, like something that took me a while to grow in as a designer is to actually push back in return sometimes. Like if you feel conviction about an idea, not being afraid to make a case for it and and not cave every single time someone pushes. And that can be PM or engineers too, where they're just like, can we cut this? Can we cut this? You know, how many times a day do you get asked like, can we cut this? And it's like, (laughs) well, a lot of the times, yeah, you can say yes. But knowing when to push back as a designer, just as the flip side of it is... I can tell that that is a skill that I've been growing in even over the last couple of years. It's interesting that in your use case, you feel like your pushback is getting you to take the design a bit further. Whereas for me, I feel like I take the design too far and we need like pushing back in my day to day is usually no, we need to scale it back a little bit more. I wonder if that's like different for us based on the size of our companies, but I just think that's interesting. Probably. <laughs> probably yeah. <laughs> I'm like, we just need to ship it and get to that next right. project. And I'm like, we need to make the most high quality thing. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so I did source a couple questions from Twitter. Yeah. I saw Laura Escobar asked, What's the most valuable learning that you wish you had when you were first starting out? The most valuable learning I've had in my career that I wish I knew when starting out was that I'm going to learn as I go. When I started this career, I thought I had to know everything about product design. And I feel like a lot of people still think that because I get asked a lot of questions online. You know, what are all the things I need to know about UX design or what's what's the list of skills I need to become a product designer? And I almost think all you need is just a good attitude and a, and a positive mindset and a willingness to learn because you're going to learn so much on the job. When I got the job at Uber, I was honestly shocked because I had zero product design experience. And I was like, why is this gigantic San Francisco tech company hiring me? I'm glad you said that because I feel the same way. And like sometimes I used to be self-conscious about the lack of what I considered like industry standard knowledge that I just 
didn't actually have. And the fact is like, I can't name many UX laws. I've been designing for 10 years and I actually don't know if I know what a double diamond process really even is. <laughs> it keeps coming up in these interviews and I'm like, huh, I guess I just, I missed that, that uh, video on YouTube or something like that. But uh, I, do, I think that is a good piece of encouragement. It's like, you're never gonna know everything and it's okay if there are gaps because we all have gaps. Next question is where do you draw inspiration from? I get asked a lot where I draw inspiration from and you'd think my answer would be like, oh, I go to museums or, oh, I look at other apps, like, you know, other like design kind of things or design environments. But it's not really from any of those places. I think I draw a lot of inspiration from seeing people interact with products in the wild or like one example would be something like you know someone's waiting for a bus stop or waiting at a bus stop and like they're super confused about what time the bus is coming how can we make that experience better like mm. these kinds of interactions between the real and digital world always are really interesting to me and i just pay attention to those moments when i see them in my day-to-day -day and kind of think oh like how could that be done differently or how could that be improved and it's not to say that that like directly inspires like the work I go and do the next day, but I think for me, it just helps me kind of build this bank of like opportunities where design can really play an interesting role so that when that opportunity does come up in my day to day, like I can think back to those moments or bring that up for conversation. I like that. You're kind of continuously growing the muscle just by looking yeah. for different mini design challenges in, in day to day. I, I dissect every interface I ever encounter. And like, <laughs> I'm like, every time I'm like, you know, on different TV apps, I look at every little interaction. Yeah, yeah. I've so seen I, your, I your ongoing Twitter thread about ARC. I think that's a good example where you're like, you know, constantly inspired by all this sort of small design decisions that they've made in that experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like opinionated software. Like when, it, when a software takes a, a hard stance on something, especially when it like in many ways corrects an existing behavior, like the idea to automatically close people's tabs after 12 hours, that is yeah. ballsy, right? <laughs> like we've been leaving tabs unopened our entire history of using the internet and they said, nope, not anymore. Crazy. Like I have so much respect for that and to be able to nail the execution. Oh man, I could go on a rant. Um, I'll ask you then, is there a product that you've used recently that makes you just kind of take a step back and be like, wow, that is good design? I've always really liked Wise. And I know it's it's not a super common uh, app or product in the US. So I don't know how familiar people are with it, but Wise used to be called TransferWise. And essentially they allow you to convert money between currencies. And as someone that's lived in three continents, three countries, I was moving money around for a little while there. And so I used Wise a lot to send and transfer money from my bank account in this country to my bank account in that country. Today, I also use it to pay freelancers that I work with who live in other countries. And so I use it pretty regularly and I've just always loved their product experience. What they do really, really nicely is they break down exactly what is gonna to happen to your money. And they also take the opportunity to really communicate well all the hidden fees behind transferring money. 
Because often we send the money and we're like, okay, I, I assume some, I paid some fees somewhere to a bank. I don't know how much. I don't know who's getting the cut of this pie, but probably some people are. And Wise is really good about making that super transparent. So everything about their experience, I've always really, really appreciated. Ever the financial product enthusiast. I know. Why? Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're actually, their new like brand guidelines design system definitely made yes, the rounds in nice. the Maven Slack. It was pretty cool. Yes. Very nicely done. Next question is at this point in your career, what's the main area that you feel like you can improve and what's your path for getting there? At this point in my career, I'm still relatively new to management about seven months in. So I still see a lot of growth for me in that area. One of the things I've been going through recently for the first time is sort of financial planning for our team. So we're trying to plan the entire roadmap, all of our priorities, our big rocks for the next 12 months. And it's the first time I'm sitting in those kinds of conversations. And I feel like it's been a lot of listening, a lot of observing, trying to understand how do these decisions get made and really also trying to figure out what is my role here in these conversations and where can I have influence and impact. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for growth in that area and sort of contributing to like bigger team stra strategy discussions. I talk a lot in my course about product strategy from a project level. I'm kind of now at the altitude where it's product strategy at the, the team level, which mm -hmm. is, brings in, brings different challenges. For me, I'm also pretty excited about the opportunity to grow a team. Right now, I have one direct report, so we're pretty small. It's not quite critical mass to have team meetings or like team design reviews with just the two of us. So I'm still excited for that opportunity and growth to sort of build a team eventually, have more reports, help them. And so building that kind of our own design team culture is something I'm looking forward to in the future. That'll be fun. I believe that you will create an awesome squad for sure. Oh, thank you. Uh, two other one-off questions. One is what are some of the th ways that you think AI will change design and how can designers set themselves up for success? I do think AI is going to change the landscape of design. I'm not sure if I'm fully in the camp of designers are going to be replaced by AI, but I definitely do see AI as a tool that can help us in our workflows. So I have tried ChatGPT. I've been using it a little bit. I still have a lot to learn myself. And I would just encourage designers to try it, like figure out what is this AI. ChatGPT is a good place to start. I know some folks have been playing around a lot with other more visual AIs, like Midjourney is another tool that I think is good to sort of dabble in. And I think once you start playing with it, you start to realize the opportunity. It's kind of hard to convince someone who hasn't tried it what the value could be or where the opportunities could be. So I'd say really all you need to do at this stage, at least all I'm doing for now, is just trying it and just using it and seeing what it can do and trying to understand its capabilities. Now that I've been doing that for like a little while, I'm starting to see those opportunities. One thing for me, I really want to build a Figma plugin and use AI to help me build the plugin. Super cool. So we'll see if I, if I get around to doing that. But I wouldn't have known that like three months ago before ever using AI, that that's something that I could do with it. So start using it. And I think you'll see the opportunities for where you could bring it into your workflow. 
I think it's awesome that you're working on a Figma plugin. I was super I'm not inspired. working on a Figma plugin yet. So there's, it's still it's on just, the cards. <laughs> the, the fact that you have adopted more of like a builder's mindset just because mm. of what these new technological advancements have made possible. That's yeah. amazing, right? Like that's amazing. I think that is so inspiring and it's just like the first inning still. I think you're right. Like I I'm not traditionally like a very builder designer. I know we have some amazing designers in our industry that are incredible builders and building amazing widgets, plugins, like tools for our industry. I've been a bit more passive on that side, but it is interesting that now that I'm sort of getting used to these AIs, I'm seeing that opportunity where I could do that too. And it's making the thought of building something more accessible for me or more realistic as something I could do. Whereas before, I was like, it's, that's too out of my depth. I don't know how to do something like that. <laughs> so I do think that that is kind of exciting that it's making things that were, well, felt not accessible to me before feel like a possibility now. What is something that you believe about product design that you think other des designers might disagree with? I think one thing, and we, we've talked about it a bit in storytelling is that when I talk about storytelling, I say that I think storytelling is a lot about selling, but I actually think design as a practice is about selling. Like everything we do as designers is about selling, whether it's trying to sell our idea or, or convince others to get buy-in or whether it's trying to sell it to a customer, right? To get them to adopt the product or the experience. And that might be controversial. I think a lot of designers don't see it that way. Um, maybe for them it's, it's more expressive or more of an art form or more of, you know, just trying to achieve some business goals or provide a good experience. At the end of the day, I think it is a lot about selling. And so I don't know if that's controversial or spicy enough for folks watching, but, uh, I do think that once you kind of grasp that as a concept, it gives you a lot more opportunity to have stronger rationale in the decisions that you're making. I think it's pretty spicy. There's, there's someone that someone somewhere is going to be listening to this and they're working on like a shader or a mesh gradient and they're just yeah, like, wait true. a second. <laughs> so you're working on a course and it's actually happening right now. You took the, the time out of your busy schedule. So thank you. Can you share a little bit more about what the course is, who's it for, and maybe what people can expect to get out of it? <laughs> The course is all about product strategy for designers. And I recommend this course for designers who are one to two years already into their career at least. So this is not a beginner course, but if you've been in your role for a couple of years and maybe you're one of those designers who are often ending up on that solutioning kind of end of the product development process where you're just pixel pushing, you're just bringing to life the solution that the PM gave to you in a product brief. And you know that there is more opportunity for you to have more, more influence and more impact in what the end result is. And you're looking for ways to do that. That's really what this course is, is here to help you achieve. So if you're looking to level up, be more than just that sort of product designer, become more of that product thinking designer, get outside of the frames of Figma and have more influence in those product conversations and strategic discussions. This is the course for you. Amazing. Well, this has been a just full of knowledge bombs. Thank you so much, Femke. Thank you.